This is Jeffrey Rickman. I'm the Methodist preacher here in Nelwada, and this is our podcast that you're listening to, and I'm glad you are. We uh, we sometimes publish stuff that's not um, what's in worship, but uh, that's our bread and butter for the most part. So you're about to hear a sermon on First Peter chapter two, which does it's it's not a it's not a fun one. This is more like if you're wanting like a happy, easy sermon. Um, you know, tune in next week. <laughs> Not that First Peter is real happy or easy. I mean, the whole book is about suffering righteously, right? So um, this this one is about um, suffering unjustly, and um, I I would I would call this a more advanced message. So if you're just now starting off your faith. Well, who knows? Maybe this would be something that really engages you, but you've been warned this is not like the saccharine, easy stuff that most people get on Sunday mornings. This is, uh, it's not R-rated. It's just, it's advanced. I don't know. It's it's a hard teaching to accept. Before we get into it, I would just um, say a couple of things. One is, um, I want to ask you to pray for this church. Uh, the United Methodist denomination is going through a splintering right now. Um, there's just a lot of churches deciding that they don't want to be a part of what the UMC is doing anymore and that the the ship just can't be made right. So um, the conference is allowing, the, the, the whole general conference is allowing American churches to take disaffiliation votes, where if you get a supermajority of uh, 66% plus one, your church can leave the denomination uh, after paying... Um, roughly a, a year's um, budget. That's, well, yeah, that's that's what both of my churches are, are voting to do on February 19th, and I preach in Delaware as well. I know both churches are just anxious about this and would appreciate and covet any prayers that you would offer. Uh, the only other thing I would say just briefly is I, I had the opportunity to gather with some people claiming to be Methodists over the last couple weeks, and um, just had an amazing time in prayer with them, and a very powerful message proclaimed about the Wesleyan heritage that I love, and I felt like I was actually listening to and praying with people who see the same Jesus as I do, and love the same Methodism as I do, and it was really exciting, and it made me hunger for that more. (laughs) So I guess I want to urge you, if you don't know what Methodism is about to take the time to learn, you can go to our YouTube page where we've published a series of videos helping people to kind of understand what Methodism is about. Um, We're we're part of the church Catholic. We don't see ourselves as, as a sect outside of traditional Christianity. We just see ourselves as the outgrowth of a revival movement that Really shouldn't have ever calmed down, but for did for various reasons. Anyway, pray for me, pray for these churches, pray for the United Methodist denomination and the Global Methodist Church and and other Wesleyan denominations that they um, that they have a fire lit under them. I guess. All right. Well, speaking of fire being lit under us, uh, let's let's listen to the word from this last Sunday. Blessings to you. Welcome to the No Water Methodist Church Podcast, where we hope to encourage you in your spiritual journey so that you may be a blessing to your local church and to the world. 
So obviously today we are talking about the principle, the Christian principle of non-retaliation. It is a very un-American and unnatural value, both. American uh, ethos is based very much on retaliation and sometimes preemptive violent action. Natural uh, human nature is also inherently violent. You have to defend yourself if you're going to expect to do well in this world. But we have to meditate on who was Jesus, how did Jesus behave, and then what are the explicit words of Scripture. Let me Before we get into the actual Scriptures, um, I, I don't know if I'm going to make you all, well, I can't make you do anything. Um, when something is not practical, does that mean we shouldn't do it? Does Jesus judge us for being practical or faithful? Yeah, when I put it in those terms, you know what the right answer is. And yet, so many people, when they receive scriptural instructions, they go, well, I don't see how that works. That's impractical. That don't work. I'm not going to do it. I would like for you to deactivate that part of your brain because I think Satan easily uses it. You can pick it back up later. I mean, you can do whatever you want. But I'm just saying to receive today's message, it would be good to take that part of your brain out for right now and just let the scriptures minister to you. Because if you're sitting there just arguing with the whole time, I don't know how that works. Oh, that's not practical. You're just not going to be able to hear what God has to say to you. And this is not the one and only time it talks about non-retaliation. I already quoted two times Jesus talks about it. Paul, this is Peter today. It is a uniform principle throughout New Testament scripture, non-retaliation. Why? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So if we take vengeance... The Lord, we're robbing the Lord of his vengeance. All right, so we talked about that in Romans. We'll talk about that again here and now. Are y'all just really excited to be standing? Susie, I'm talking to you. Are you. Everybody else is sitting. Do you want to sit, chill out, listen? Or are you happy standing? You're happy standing. Okay, you can stand. All right, just don't, don't, don't chatter, but you can stand. Okay, you're doing great. Already preaching at everybody with the prayer of St. Francis. Oh, goodness. All right, so we're in 1 Peter chapter 2. It begins on page 1888 of your pew Bibles. It's near the end there. Last week, the, the last chapter ended up uh, talking about how those things of the Lord, the Word of God, endures forever. So we root ourselves not in things of this world that will pass away, they're temporal. Rather, we root ourselves in things eternal that do not pass away, that are pure, those things of God. So it's picking up from there on chapter 2. Listen again to the Word of God. Therefore saying, therefore, because God has given us this pure word, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. It says rid it. Rid yourselves. That means get rid of it, right? Well, let's talk about these things. Malice. Malice is doing anything with bad intentions in your heart, right? Trying to hurt somebody. Okay. Deceit. That's anything dishonest, right? making someone think something that's not true. Hypocrisy is not practicing what you preach, saying one thing and doing another, right? Envy, desiring what someone else has. Heck, our culture is based on that, right? Slander is speaking uh, evil, speaking dishonestly about someone else. So it's not always bad to, to acknowledge that something wrong or evil is happening. The question is, are you in being right spirit about it and are you being honest about it? So it's important to speak the truth with love, as Paul says in Ephesians, right? So it's saying, if you are rooted in Christ Jesus, if you are in this eternal blessing that he has given you, then you're going to get rid of all these things from your life. 
And it's really black and white about it. It doesn't say, but you can hold on to some for a little bit, or, you know, sometimes it's okay to envy because it's great for capitalism. It doesn't do that. It just says, if you were a born-again believer, you don't do these things. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. So this is a metaphor, right? We are not babies. We're grown-ups. I have an infant right now. I was holding her at the beginning of worship, Abigail. Abigail is a different baby than the three I had before. The other three I had before, whenever it came time, they got those teeth that started eating solid foods. They started playing with it, eating it. Abigail, we put her at the table, I don't know how many times, put food in front of her, and she hates it. She wants nothing to do with it. She's got mama's milk. Why would she want this trash? That's pretty much what she's saying. Now, there's a certain wisdom to that, isn't there? And I think that's what it's talking about here. We have the pure word of God available to us in the Holy Scriptures, available to us in the Christian history of 2,000 years where people have practiced this well. Why on earth are we ingesting these garbage stories of this condemned, damned world? How many of us are watching TV and movies and reading stupid novels all the time when we don't even know what's in God's holy word? Do you feel attacked? I meant that as an attack. First things first, we have God's pure word, spiritual milk, and we are just these pure little babies. Not We aren't pure babies. We're fallen babies that God is nurturing to wholeness and health, and we need to drink that spiritual milk. How, do you know that God is good? We are told, we say it all the time, God is good, all the time, all the time. We say it, and then we invest in this fallen world, and we learn all about this fallen world. We don't learn about Jesus like we should. If you're convicted, repent. As, as you come to him, it's talking about Jesus, the living stone. That is quite a metaphor, isn't it? A living stone. Why living? Well, Christ is alive, right? He didn't die. Well, he did die, and then he came back from the dead. He was raised from the dead by the uh, power of God the Father. But a stone, why is it calling him a stone? A stone is strong, hard. Actually, we're, uh, spoiler alert, we're going to have some scriptures that tell us, scriptures from the Old Testament that tell you exactly what to think of that. So let's go, go to those. Jesus was rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. So it's like I was talking with the kids. It doesn't matter what the teacher thinks. It doesn't matter what your friends think. It only matters what God thinks, right? The world did not regard Jesus as anything special. That didn't matter. It only matters what God thinks. Amen? Verse 5, you also. So as you come to Jesus, the living stone, you also, verse 5, like living stones. Wait, who is the living stone? Jesus. It's saying that when we come to him, we become like him. Okay, nearer my God to thee. Even though it be a cross that raiseth me, the cross is the way to Jesus, right? When we're baptized, we die in Christ, and we're raised in Christ to become like Christ. Christians are not people still dead in their sins, still living as worldlings who just love Jesus. That's the faith of demons. That leads to condemnation. Christians are people who've died to themselves, are reborn, born again, regenerated, have the Spirit of Christ in us, and walk in his ways. Live and die like him. He is a living stone. We become living stones like him. Not just like him, but like him. So listen to this. It says, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. This is a metaphor. We're not going to do a human pyramid today, although that might be fun some other time. Let me know if you want to do that midweek. I'm joking. We're not doing that. That would be silly. 
But the thing is, you and I are like living stones, and we are being built into a, a, a holy edifice. What was the building that the Jews worshipped in? The temple. Susie smoked you all again. The temple. And it's saying that you and me together, with the Holy Spirit animating us, are like a temple for God. We're built as holy and living stones into a new temple for God. That's what the church is. The church is not this building. The church is this building, built together, living stones in the image of Christ Jesus. Do you understand this metaphor, or do I need to keep playing with it? Okay, Joe gave me a thumbs up, so we're going on. So we're built into a spiritual house, and then to be a holy priesthood. Now, I ask this question like once every six months. We don't ever hold on to it. What's a priesthood? What does a priesthood do? What are priests for? That's prophets. What do priests do? Say it. They offer sacrifices. Why? What are the sacrifices accomplishing? There it is. Priests achieve atonement for sins. Atonement means at one that's literally where the word comes from. Sin separates us from God, whether we feel it or not. There are a lot of people who say, oh, I sin and I'm close to God. And I'm just fine. No, they're just dead. They can't feel the wrath upon them. Sin separates us from God. What needs to be done is a sacrifice needs to be offered to atone for our sins, to cover them over. That's what priests in the Old Testament do. That's what priests in Christ Jesus do. The thing is that Christ Jesus already made the sacrifice that atones for our sins. And so the priests tap into that. So we are a priesthood, and that means that we're coming between God and sinful humans that are separated from him, and we're reconciling God to this sinful world. That's what we are, because we're living stones built into a temple for him. I don't think anything I'm saying so far can be argued with. I mean, some people can try, but I think this is pretty self-explanatory. We are to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices you see that acceptable to god through christ jesus so we don't need to be killing goats bulls and rams up here because christ the atoning lamb has already been killed so we are officiating in a sense the sacrifice that's already taken place we are achieving in our work that we do here holy prayer because we're holy as jesus is holy we're living stones like him that's the mission of reconciliation that christ has given us to be like him and to reconnect this broken world with God. Is that a big mission? Uh, if there's not a bigger, I don't think there's a bigger mission that we could possibly be assigned. Now, God's equipped us for that mission. He sent us his Holy Spirit, his word. He's given us his church. The question is not, uh, is God able or willing? The question is, are we able and willing? And the answer is, by the power of God, we are able but are we willing? And a lot of people, a lot of churches, they don't even know that's their job. They think their job is to get together once a week and turn on the laser light show and the smoke machine and sing their heart out and go home and live as heathens. That is not what the Bible points to. The Bible points to you and I need to live transformed, holy, pure, eternal lives alongside one another in the church to the glory of God the Father to reconcile a sinful world with a righteous God. We're in verse 6 now. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So this is obviously a metaphor, right? A stone is an it. Saying whoever trusts in him, this cornerstone. What's a cornerstone? When you have uh, uh, two walls, they make a corner, 
And the stone right there underneath that supports the weight of both those walls. So you need a real good stone, real hard, real strong. That's Jesus, okay? So it's saying God laid him in Zion. That's the holy city, Jerusalem. He laid Jesus there, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. That's supposed to be us, right? If we put our trust in Jesus, we will never be put to shame. Verse 7, now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, are there any people who don't believe in Jesus? Are there people who believe he was a historical figure but not the son of God? Tons of them. So it's talking about these people. What about them? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's from Psalm 118. So the, the quote from above was from Isaiah. This is Psalm 118. And then it quotes Isaiah again in verse 8. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Jesus is the main character of history. Everything was made in, through, for, and by him. And when we live with him, when we put our trust in him, he is the source of greatest blessing. But when we reject him, as the world does, then we stand condemned. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the gate. There is no way to the Father except through him. I'm paraphrasing a lot of scripture here. I'm quoting, I'm, I'm pretty much giving you like orthodox, historic Christian theology. I know there are people today who say you can get to heaven without Jesus. They're wrong. They're liars sent straight from the evil one. We're doing this thing, this Christian worship thing. We're allowing ourselves to be reformed today because, not because it's some nice thing to do that's optional. This is the most important thing to do in this life without which we will be forever sorrowing, suffering in the place of gnashing and weeping, gnashing of teeth and weeping. These are words from Jesus himself. We treat this with ultimate sobriety and seriousness. These people who don't follow Jesus, they stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. So, obedience. Is it important? Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. That's John chapter 14, verse 15. He meant what he said. Obedience is the mark of a believer. Verse 9, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. These are all terms used about the Jews in the Old Testament. What we're tapping into here is something that's been warped by many traditions in the world. If you know anything about the Mormons, they believe they're a lost tribe of Israel that supplants Israel. If you know anything about the black Hebrew Israelites, I think Kanye West is now tied to them. They believe that they are a lost tribe of Israel who supplants the old Israel. Jew Christians are told right here that in a very real sense, we are Jews. In fact, we are more Jewish than the Jews, which is a very dangerous thing to talk about. You know that I, I, I'm, I'm a philo-Semite. I, I, I do not wish the Jews any harm. I actually like them. I want them to do well. In Romans, it says at the end of history, they will come into the fold. Don't mess with the Jews. Uh, no part. But even so, the scripture says here, we are the new, better Jews. We have a new, better covenant. That's how Paul talks about it in Galatians. That's why in Romans, which we went over, he talks about anyone is a child of Abraham. The Jews were children of Abraham. Anyone's a child of Abraham who lives by faith, right? Abram believed, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. He quotes that. And he talks about circumcision, not physical circumcision, but a circumcision of the heart. He takes all of these, these Hebrew Jewish things, and he makes them about Christ and his covenant, and that's us. 
and we have a better covenant than the Jews. That's not something that we walk around cocky and lord it around. That's something that it said in chapter 1, we are filled with inexpressible joy because of. We need to live lives of inexpressible joy. But the thing is, we have lives of great suffering and turmoil sometimes, don't we? Anyone here ever suffered? How on earth can we rejoice in the midst of suffering? That, that, that don't make no sense. Let's, let's keep reading. We are these, these holy things that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Ephesians starts this way too. It says, y'all used to be dead in your sins, a bunch of pagans separated by the world, hating each other. Now, because of your understanding of your sin and the forgiveness of Christ, you're all one family. And the middle wall has been broken down, and now we're all one people. Once upon a time, we were living under God's wrath. Now we're living under God's love. That means something. It's a great blessing for which we are filled with inexpressible joy. Verse 11. We might be able to do this by noon. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles... He's talking to us, right? Are we foreigners and exiles? It's absolutely essential that we have this identity. I've sung it from the pulpit before. I am a poor wayfaring stranger. I'm traveling through this world of woe. But there's no sickness, toil, nor danger in that bright land to which I go. I'm going there to see my father. I'm going there no more to roam. I'm only going over Jordan. I'm only going over home. Our home is with Christ. Our home is in the heavenly realms. This place is a weird place that we just are for right now. This world is not our home. We are strangers. We are foreigners. We're a peculiar people living in a fallen world. So, he says, as foreigners and exiles, to you need to abstain. So before it talked about ridding uh, some bad things. Now he's getting back to getting rid of things. You abstain from sinful desires. What's a sinful desire? Anything that separates you from God. Anything that Jesus or God's holy word says not to do, don't do it. It's that simple. Don't do it. These sinful desires which wage war against your soul. If you've ever struggled against your sin, you know that it's waging war against you. It's a very real war. It wants to take you from Jesus. Jesus has escorted you into the realm of inexpressible light, but man, that darkness would love to have you back. And part of you wants that darkness. Can't listen to that part. You have to abstain. You have to renounce. Verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans. A pagan is non-believer, right? Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. There's this guy, uh, Jeff Durbin. I think his church is in Salt Lake City. And uh, he, he, uh, he's one of these street preachers. And he, 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 he's very respectful, but he has arguments with people on the street. He'll talk with Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses about why they're wrong about doctrine. But he'll also talk about abortion. He's just very clear that abortion is wrong and evil. And he's very respectful in conversation. Um, he does a really good job. And one of the more important, powerful videos I saw one time, the, the, the legislature of Utah 
was entertaining some new legislation around abortion, and he was summoned to the state capitol to speak to uh, these officials who did not like him at all. They were being so rude and nasty to him. He didn't respond in kind at all. And they tried to do that two coquet thing where they're like, well, how, how do we know this is even important to you? You're just preaching at other people. You're a man. You, you don't have to carry a burden. You don't, you don't have anything to do with abortion. They said, have you even ever adopted somebody? He said, yeah, I've adopted somebody. He says, I have a special needs daughter at home whom I love with all my heart. And instantly they were silent. It just threw them off, you know, because they have a caricature in their head of these holy rollers just preaching at everybody about how evil they are, but they're hypocrites. They're evil themselves, right? Except some people actually practice what they preach. And whether or not you agree on the abortion issue, you have to admire somebody who has the integrity to live a righteous and pure life so that they can't be scandalized. That's the kind of witness it's talking about here, where even if you hate what he's about, you have to admit the guy has integrity. He's built his life around what he believes. That's the kind of lives that we're supposed to lead. Holy, godly, pure lives that even though they might think we're morons, even though they might think we're following our magic sky God and we think we're going to live forever with him up in his little temple, you know, people can mock it. But when they look at the way we live, they got to see that there's something real there. The way we live, holy and pure lives. Live such good lives among the pagans, though they accuse you of doing wrong, that they see your good deeds and they glorify God on the day that he visits us. Submit yourselves. So we talked about obedience, now it's submission, right? Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. <laughs> I hate this one. <laughs> uh, whether to the emperor as a supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. That's a repetition of the same idea that was before. There are a lot of people who, who are they're just they're fools. They don't see the wisdom of God. They think that we're fools for following him. We need to live in such a way that those morons are shut up. I said morons from the pulpit. It's not really a bad word. It's just dismissive. But here it's calling them foolish, foolish people. That's what foolish people are. They're morons. Uh, verse 15. No, we just did that. Verse 16. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. So are we free? I mean, like as Americans, as political entities, are we free? Yeah, we live in the land of the free, the home of the brave. But the thing is, it matters what you do with your freedom. We are free, but the way we choose to use our freedom will condemn us. So do we have free speech? Absolutely. This is a land of free speech. However, if you do not govern your tongue, you are condemning yourself. This is a land where you can defend yourself with violence. This week I saw a video, really wounded me. This guy walked into a, a restaurant with a fake gun. It looked real. He was holding people up. Another guy stood up with a real gun and shot him three times as he ran for the door. He fell down. That was a pretty much open closed case of understandable but then he walks over and he executes the guy, just unloads the rest of his clip in him. That's evil. And I don't care what American law says. If it eventually he gets off and he's excused, God sees that. He knows that man's heart. He might have been free to do it, but that was a wicked thing to do. It's, it, it hurt my spirit just to watch it. Just because we have freedom does not mean that we can use it for evil. Rather, it's really hard for us who are free 
because we have to govern ourselves according to the laws of the land and the laws of God, and they don't always match. Now, to be clear, it's saying that we should submit to worldly authorities, but what if worldly authorities expect us to do evil with the world? What then? Do we still conform? No, that's silly. <laughs> no, we're called to serve God rather than men. But insofar as we're able, we've got to get along with all men, and that means submitting to and obeying worldly authorities. And I'm saying that I'm the biggest hypocrite in this room. I was in the principal's office half the time in high school because I just would not obey the authority figures in my life. I had a real problem. Even, even last week, I'm talking back to a guy at the airport who's telling me something I don't like. I need to just shut up. It's a problem. But seriously, I've been able to park outside that place for like 20 years, and all of a sudden they got signs everywhere saying you can't park there no more. Give me a break. There was no cars around, but whatever. He's the authority figure. Verse 17. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This should fit with everything we've talked about before. So here's the hard part. It's talking about slaves next. And slaves were in every ancient culture until very recently. Okay, And there are still slaves today, some even in America that we don't know about. There are millions of slaves throughout the world today. And this is telling slaves how they ought to behave. Now, if you're an American, what you're told is slavery is always inexcusable. Every slave is justified in rebelling. And people who hold slaves should be killed. We had a war in this country where hundreds of thousands of Americans were killed to end slavery. The problem here is that the, the scripture doesn't have that take. The, the scriptures engage in a messy world where they just know that they're slaves and slaveholders. And rather than saying, you got to kill your slave master and get out, it's going to say the opposite. It's going to say, slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. This is a hard teaching. It gets harder, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Now, throughout history, there have been slave masters that are governed by kindness and are generally kind. There have also been inhumane, awful slave masters in every culture that did terrible stuff. It wasn't just in America. The, the example that I use in ancient Rome, uh, sometimes they liked having plays in amphitheaters outside and the sun would go down and they needed light. One of the easiest sources of fuel was just to douse a slave in oil and light him on fire lasted 30 minutes for them. They didn't even bat an eye at it because they didn't believe in the Imago Dei. They didn't believe that every person is made in God's image. Slaves were there to be used. That was the best use of that slave. And it's in that culture that it's talking to these slaves. It's saying that you should submit to unjust masters. Can you imagine such a command? This is a very extreme teaching. Now, it's the, uh, I'm going to go ahead and, I mean, we're going to finish this in a second, but I'm going to tell you why it is that Peter can say this. And it's because we have a God in heaven who rewards faithfulness. And even if you're burned alive for 30 minutes, do you believe that God can make that right? I mean, that's a bad end. I don't want it. Oh, boy, would I be running the other way if I could. But I know that God is who he said he is, and he will more than make up for any suffering I have in faithfulness to him. And when it says, obey worldly authorities out of reverence for God, I have to trust that if I swallow my pride, I go through pain, I am, just, I am unjustly harmed, that God can and will make that right. This is a hard teaching, is it not? 
This is probably one of the hardest, it's probably the hardest teaching in the Bible. It's so much easier just to believe that Jesus died for my sins. But when it says, okay, if you believe that, then you need to submit and obey. This is hard. Verse 19. For it is commendable, that means it's a good thing, if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. We live in a culture that says the opposite. Our culture says if you are being punished for something you didn't do, you're a chump. You deserve it even. You're just a sucker. You know What it's saying here is, if you're unjustly punished, that's great. God is going to punish your punishers, and he's going to reward you. Verse 20. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? Saying you deserved it. God's not going to reward you for that. So don't be a jerk slave. Be a good slave. Submit, do good, and if he hurts you, the slave master, God will reward you and punish him. Um, verse 20, uh, no, no, I already started it. Okay, but if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. All right, 21. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Okay, so it's coming back to Jesus. We've been doing the abstract, political, domestic environment. Now we're coming to, okay, I don't want to do that. Okay, how did Jesus live though? What was Jesus' witness when it came to suffering unjustly? Quote, 22, this is a, a quote from Isaiah 53. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So you remember that? They crucified my Lord, but he never said a mumbling word. You remember that one? They crucified my Lord, but he never said a mumbling word. Not a word, not a word, not a word. Now, it's not the same thing. I hope he didn't get, doesn't get mad at me for bringing it up, but we have a judge in this town who sits at the seat, and there will be people who come up to him, and they personally insult him. They level all kinds of personal abuse at him. And he doesn't, he, doesn't give him a, he doesn't dress him down. He, just, he doesn't say, I can throw you in contempt. I can ruin your life. You, he just sits there. He just takes it. It's like water off a duck's back. He says, okay, now, here's what I can do for you. What do you need from me? I, I want to help you out here. That is quite a Christian witness. I have not been purified on that level. So I love when I get to see other people who just take it. They don't defend themselves. And they just treat people justly. And I know that's what you're going for, and I admire the heck out of you for it. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. That's what our lives are about. We die to sin. We live for righteousness. This is basic. By his wounds you have been healed, it says. It's quoting from Isaiah again. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. What this chapter is doing is it's making you reflect on who Christ is, what he's done for you. It's filling you with inexpressible joy, and then it's asking you to come back to your suffering and to be strong, to persevere, to endure injustice, trusting that God is just and he will make things right. Mm. I wish there was something to say where I say the phrase and you all go, oh, okay, great. Yeah, we can receive that now. 
but this is a hard, bitter teaching. And I know, uh, well, let me just say, there's a temptation anytime a pastor gives a message like this to be like, he doesn't know what he's talking about. One, yes, I do. But two, I'm not perfect in this. I hope I've confessed my sins. I, I regularly speak in defense of myself when I shouldn't. I regularly correct whenever I should just let God take care of it. This is something that I'm working on all the time. Something I'll say, though. I got attacked this week. And I was tempted, but I didn't say anything. But there were other people around. And those other people corrected that person who attacked me. And I got to just sit back and watch. And it was wonderful. And I just think that's who we ought to be for one another. I think we're going to go through our lives striving for righteousness. And there are going to be people who say, oh, that, you know, so-and-so. I don't want to name anybody here. But so-and-so, oh, they're just so full of it. Oh, and we ought to be able to say, hey, I know them. And she is a lovely person. Let me tell you something I know about her. Let me, let me tell you about walking with her for the 10 years I've been part of this church. And you don't know what you're talking about. And you know what? In 1 Peter chapter 2, it talks about foolish people like you who speak ill of holy people. And I'm not going to let you speak ill of my friend. Can you imagine having friends like that who stand up for you? In fact, I would urge you in your heart right now to commit to be such a friend for one another. We're entering, we're already, we're going out into a world that scoffs at Christians, that thinks we're silly, often thinks we're enemies, and we often are ideologically enemies of the culture around us. We need to stand together. We need to have each other's back, and that doesn't mean returning evil for evil. That means living righteous and pure lives that put the world to shame. And if you haven't picked up your cross to do that yet, today is the day. Pick up your cross, because that brings you closer to Christ. Amen? Let's stand and sing our closing hymn. Jesus asked the apostles, are ye able? And they said, yes, Lord, we are able. It's hymn number 530. Are ye able, said the master, to be crucified with me? Yea, the sturdy dreamers answered, to the death we follow thee. As we sing these firm words, may the steel of the Holy Spirit fill us as well. <laughs>